The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, it's episode 16 and as advertised... It's within a month even of episode 15. We're setting a record. I know. Fast turnaround and we're about to do faster because we just recorded an interview that's smoking hot with an amazing DP on an upcoming movie. But if you want to find out who it is, you're going to have to wait for the war story. That's right. It's a surprise. It's a big surprise. Very exciting. So, Ben, what's happening in uh, Hollywood right now? Well, uh, now that we've uh, cleared the air of everyone being sex monsters... Uh, sex monsters and there was a whole bunch of fires and actually more sex monsters i'm sure that we are uh, not even through the crust of the sex monster pie as it were <laughs> four and 20 sex monsters baked in a pie so, <laughs> i know that's where you were heading with that yes. hey one major studio bought another and i certainly can't remember when or if this has happened before i guess we'll have that'll be a a googling question but uh yeah certainly not in my lifetime can i recall one major studio now owning another disney bought fox i'm going to say for full disclosure i do a lot of freelance work for disney and they're great people and i love working for disney and i don't see the first sinister thing in this but i will say it appears to be to me that disney just wants whatever people are looking at it to be a disney thing all the time for their their entire lives (laughs) from birth yeah, because, I mean, people don't really realize it necessarily, or maybe they do, but Disney owns The Muppets, Disney owns Marvel, Disney owns ABC Television, and Star Wars, Disney owns Star Wars, and Disney owns ESPN. That was one I actually didn't know about when I went to work for them. Well, now that they've acquired Fox, they also own The Simpsons and Family Guy and... Uh, the Shield. The Shield, yes, plus also <laughs> the FX Network and all of the programming that has been on all of their cable networks. Here's the thing I'm waiting for now, and I'm not a giant comic book geek, but the first thing that occurred to me was now the X-Men could appear in the Marvel Cinematic Universe because they have the same owner. Because up until now, the X-Men and Spider-Man have been owned by Fox. No, excuse me. Sony Sony owned uh, Spider-Man. Yes, Spider-Man is still a Sony thing, so scratch that. I'm going to leave that mistake in there. Enjoy my dumbness, everyone. (laughs) But up until now, Fox has owned the X-Men, and Marvel slash Disney has owned the the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And there's always been talk of like, will Wolverine show up in a, in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie? Well, nerds, you're welcome. Now it can happen. There, there was one other you missed, um, although it barely it requires mentioning. The Fantastic Four were also Fox. And it should also be said that because he is part of the X-Men universe, Deadpool, now on a Disney property. That's right. Yeah. That's kind of fun. I guess it probably stands to reason that Marvel is just going to make a movie now with every freaking property. They're going to have every everyone in there. It's going to be like, you know, they show up at the, the grocery store <laughs> and Deadpool's bagging groceries and it's going to I'd, be. I'd be down if like somehow they got like Deadpool and the Muppets into the Star Wars universe. I'd be OK with that. <laughs> so, Ilya, tell me about uh, this week's sponsor. 
Uh, this week's sponsor is last week's sponsor, and some weeks before that, of course, it's Aerie, the fantastic German company of who makes all kinds of incredible products for this industry, including cameras and lenses. And today, I was going to mention one of their coolest products, which is something. Uh, it's a front box, right? It's not a front box. Do they make front boxes? No, they don't make front boxes. Aerie, get on the stick and make a front box. And for everyone who's listening who has no idea what a front box is, it's a little wooden box that sits in the front of a tripod where the camera assistant puts their chewing gum. Not kidding. Mints, gum, and a few other things. And Aerie doesn't make one. So go on. Tell us how awesome they are. Okay. So Aerie does make something really awesome though called a sky panel. And a sky panel is a LED light. And they now have a new size for the sky panel, which is something called the S360C. It is huge. It is a massive, massive LED light. And LED lights, um, I'm, I'm teasing it right now. My short end for the week is LED lights, but I have to mention... Spoiler that. alert. I know, total spoiler, but Airy has done some really amazing stuff with LED lighting, and they're probably their most successful light that they may have ever made is now the sky panel. And what makes it so amazing is that uh, it's programmable. In addition to just being a giant soft source, it can do the effects of fire and fireworks and television and strobe lights and candles Mm -hmm. and cop cars and you name it. It can do all kinds of stuff built in with no gels. And these things used to require special boxes, special hardwares or clever crew members who could create these effects on Mm -hmm. set. Now it's you literally go to the light, push a button and voila, you've got that effect. That's pretty amazing. So Ben, you, you may not have ever used one of these yet. How, how big is it? Like, I just need to understand like 50 and a half inches by 34 and a half inches. That's not that big, but it puts out that much light. It puts out a lot of light. It's, it's a, well, it's, it puts out a lot of soft light plus does all these cool RGB color effects. We're going to just keep seeing more and more fancier stuff. I'm sure from Airy, but also from everyone, uh, out of these newfangled LEDs that can do shit, shit like fire and stuff. Right. Yes, exactly. And uh, let me tell you, Aerie is sort of the the trailblazer. They they come up with uh, some some new feature, and I tell you, it'll trickle down eventually to other products and other people. They're very, very, uh, they're they're very, very influential in the industry. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Aerie. We're uh, proud to have you as a sponsor, uh, and uh, we hope everyone goes out and checks out a sky panel. Do it. So, Ben. Jim Frona is on the show today, right? Jim Frona. Yes. Jim Frona, who uh, was the DP on Transparent and I Love Dick and uh, has done a lot of work with Jill Soloway over the years as kind of a kind of a visionary. I, I, I when I look at Jim Frona's work, I always feel like what he gets is spontaneous, almost accidental looking beauty that is not accidental or spontaneous. It's very designed cleverly by him, but he comes up with uh, unique ways to make every uh every scene feel uh, like fresh and spontaneous and that the beautiful light just happens to be being captured in the moment. And it doesn't, it doesn't have a sense of feeling like a movie in, in a traditional sense. I, I really love his work. And now Jim Frona. And now Jim Frona. The cinematography podcast interview. So thank you, Jim Froneth, for coming in. First off, I kind of have a couple of stock questions. I don't know if you've listened to a lot of our episodes, but my my number one stock question is, I've noticed in, in my conversations with cinematographers that some people start with a sense of composition or some people start with a sense of lighting. Mm-hmm. Which are you or am I fundamentally wrong even in asking the question? I would say it sort of all reveals itself at the same time, uh-huh. if that makes sense. I suppose if I'm really thinking about it, I, I can be in a set or at a location and 
get a visual hit of something. And so I guess in that way, it has nothing to do with lighting because it, it could be when we're scouting, it could be, you know, before the actors have arrived on set or it could be during a rehearsal or something. So in that way, maybe I do see the image in terms of, I don't think of it as a frame. It's interesting. I, I actually really appreciate the question. Um, and I've heard you ask it before and it made me think, what do I see first? And I think I just see something, but it almost doesn't, I don't think of it so rigidly as, oh, that's the frame or I know the lens size or anything like yeah. that. It's just a visual hit. When I look at your work, I think of, it, it's weird because it's so specific and so beautiful and so impressionistic, Thank but you. it also feels, it has the a feeling that I think is what, is what you're going for, which is that it feels like you're just there. It just feels like you're just there and you've, you've captured this moment of intense beauty somehow. We've actually talked about it on the podcast before, mm. talked about transparent especially. Oh, cool. Let's go back and, and just kind of talk about like, well, first let's talk about how you even approach a script or I don't know how transparent is written. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, how specifically laid down it is or how imp- improvisational it is because it feels so real. Mm-hmm. But obviously creating the sense that you create requires a great deal of, of skill and specificity to create something that feels like it just happened. How do you go about creating an environment for that? I mean, you kind of started with the question of how do I approach a script? So I'm, I'm in, my brain is trying to connect the two. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it's fine to, fine. it's yeah, fine yeah, to start. Yeah. So, well, I yeah. think, how would you, how do you approach the script? Right. And then how do you also, I mean, to me, I think this underlies every interview that I've ever done on this, which is how, you know, if you were to give the same script to five different DPs, mm-hmm. you'd end up with five different, completely different looking, feeling everything mm-hmm. uh, and products. So what, what is it that jumps out to you when you do read a script? What, what is your process for turning that into pictures? Right. So I'm going to answer it this way. I remember when I was, because I started as a gaffer in commercials, mainly I did some features. And then when I started shooting, I was in the commercial realm. So that was my first, you know, those are my first paychecks. Yeah. I also did some documentary, which I always loved. And, you know, then when I was really itching to get into narrative and I started talking to DP friends of mine, talking about, you know, if I got a meeting for a feature, let's say an indie feature, you know, just asking them what's that like, or, you know, any advice going into these meetings and, uh, pretty much across the board, a number, most of the DPs would talk about how they would come in with a Bible, essentially mm-hmm. like they'd put together a lookbook or they'd have all sorts of materials just coming straight into the meeting, not having met with the director or you know director writer or whatever. And even at the very beginning, there was something about that that didn't suit me. So my answer to your question is, I need to sit with the director mm-hmm. and hear from them what story, what the story is, you know, what, why they're telling this story. What does this scene feel like in their mind? not necessarily even the visuals, but just like what's going on for the characters and to ask a lot of questions. So I'm not somebody who, it actually just doesn't make sense to me that I would know how I was gonna shoot something until I had that conversation. Mm-hmm. In contrast to the people who talked about like, they're coming in gangbusters with you know a whole color palette and all <laughs> sorts of ideas. It's like, I need to kind of tap into the person making, telling the story, the director or writer, I mean, director, writer, in the case of Jill Soloway, certainly. And it's like, what is this scene about? What's the feeling of this scene? And if I have that, if I can absorb that from them, then it doesn't take much to grasp or to even envision how we're going to shoot it or what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in terms of 
because a, a lot of what we're talking about already it, it pertains to all the stuff I've done with Jill over the last, it'll be, we shot her feature Afternoon Delight five years ago this August. So it's been an amazing five years. Yeah, yeah. In collaboration with her. Um, and of course, working with other directors within Transparent and I Love Dick. From the very beginning, it was always that kind of conversation. What's yeah, but I, I went on your website and I looked at a bunch of your uh, commercials. Mm -hmm. And I even feel like your commercials kind of have this, I, it, it's, it's hard to describe it. It just, in the specific look of them, mm -hmm. there's a feeling like I'm seeing a real event. Like a lot of commercials mm -hmm. feel very, and by design even, a lot of commercials look, are, are very contrived, kind of almost like a comedy sketch or something mm -hmm. like, or like a joke or a comic strip, very set up punchline, right. you know, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the stuff that you have, there's, there's a, a sense of, there's something spontaneous happening mm -hmm. and it draws your eye in. And I know that, you know, obviously some of that's the concept, some of that's mm -hmm. the director. But as I looked at all of your work, no matter how, you know, because I saw a bunch of different styles represented in the in the commercials and stuff. Mm -hmm. They all they all kind of captured that. Now, it might be that because of you, because of your documentary background, and we'll go back and talk about your background here in a second. It might it might be about that kind of a thing, mm -hmm. but I, I think it's 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 interesting. You know, like for instance, the next episode we have going up is about is is Rodney Charters. You'll mm -hmm. you'll you'll probably your war story will probably be on Rodney's mm -hmm. thing, and I feel like Rodney, you know, with Twenty Four, create kind of brought a certain documentary aesthetic to action television in a mm -hmm. way that nobody had done it. And I feel like you're you're bringing kind of a documentary aesthetic. I mean, maybe that's what I'm dancing around mm -hmm. to narrative storytelling, but obviously it's you know, it's written, it's approved. There's a director, right. you know, actors have, I'm assuming sides, script, whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you're, you're creating this, this moment that feels very documentary ish, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. So I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I was a gaffer for a long time and one of the DPs I worked with shot everything for Mike Mills mm -hmm. from when Mike was first doing music videos and then got into commercials and had a hugely successful commercial directing career and then made a couple of shorts with him and then did his first feature Thumbsucker. Mm -hmm. And then Mike wanted to do this documentary in Japan called Does Your Soul Have a Cold about depression and the pharmaceutical, you know, Western pharmaceutical <laughs> companies dumping their pills all over Japan in a, in a place that had no word for depression in their vocabulary. Anyway, this, this documentary comes along and Mike asked me to shoot it. And that was the very first thing that I did as a DP. And what was fantastic for me was that, you know, these relationships that I had built up that, uh, over all these years that maybe felt like they weren't going to, you know, lead to a more creative place. Suddenly this door opens up when Mike hires me because then, um, Dayton Ferris who did, you know, little Miss Sunshine most probably most famously, um, but it had been in the commercial and music video world and are still shooting a lot of cool stuff even today. They heard, oh, Mike hired Jim Frona, maybe, you know, let's hire him to do this Red Hot Chili Peppers video. So this is a bit of a, you know, weaving story, but it gets back to what you're talking about. So that music video was for a song called Tell Me Baby. And the concept of the song or the concept of the video rather, and the song, the theme of the song is like all these people who come to Hollywood, all the dreamers right all the, mm -hmm. the misfits and artists and everything and and who makes it um and so they decided that for the video it would be set up like auditions and in the end result of the video you just see these different musicians auditioning the song or you know one one's a bass player one's a drummer whatever coming in and you know doing the typical audition thing facing the camera profile like you know tell us a little bit about yeah. yourself and but when we shot it they also auditioned 
actors and people with special skills like, you know, fire jugglers and stuff like that. It, it ended up being too many people to fit in the video. But I bring it up because they hired this woman, Joan Shekel, who is sort of this directing, writing, indie filmmaker, and now episodic guru here in Hollywood. And it's funny because Mike had actually, I remembered meeting Joan briefly on the set of uh, Mike's Mike Mills's short film that we did a couple years prior. And Joan showed up to be the person running the auditions for these actors. And I'm watching her work with complete strangers that she had never met. And within 10 minutes, getting them to some very deep emotional places. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, like one of the things she was sent over to do was, you know, they wanted people crying on cue on camera, you know, as part of the audition. But watching her work with these people and, and bring this stuff out, you know, I started talking to her in between the, the different folks coming through the door. And she said, you know, you're behind the camera, but your energy, who you are, your connection or disconnection to what's happening on the other side of the camera actually affects the person in front of you. And so she had us kind of experiment with this thing where it's like a person would come in and she wouldn't say anything and they would just be standing there in front of the camera. And she asked, you know, beforehand, Joan would say like, just try just like, you know, try to feel yourself connecting to who's in front of the camera or in some cases, well, like put up a wall. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of this little, you know, mini experiment, but in further talking to her that day, she, she again kind of reinforced this idea, like whether it's a commercial or whatever the project is, like you, me, Jim, matter in terms of there's a person holding the camera. Yeah. And the person on the other side, whether they're aware or not, is affected by your energy or your, your connection or lack thereof. And I just remember thinking about that. And, and then as my DP career started happening and even on commercials, like the, you know, the silliest, like detergent commercial, I would, you know, kind of test that thing out. Now, how that exactly fully translates into the, the look that you're talking about or the feeling of, of my shooting, um, I don't think it's the only element, but it, it certainly is a big element. And it's something that I think now looking back on it, that even Jill Soloway recognized because at that point she was essentially looking at my commercial reel yeah. for her feature and wanting something that had a naturalistic lighting quality, wanting something that had this sort of to, you know, the handheld thing that lends itself towards what we would call the documentary, right? Verite kind of feeling. Yeah. Um, but also I, I think that what I know now having shot all the four seasons of transparent and I love Dick is that it's this feeling of like, we are there, it's unfolding before us and we're connected. So to me, the connection part goes back to that day meeting Joan Shekel. And by the way, since when I met Jill and we sat down together, we bonded over two things. The first was Andrea Arnold's movie fish tank, which very much has the feeling and the qualities that we're talking about. And the other thing was, uh, Joan Shekel. She had known of Joan and Joan used to run these like six week director writer labs and now does much smaller versions of them. But after, you know, as things progressed, we ended up going in with the cast of Transparent when that show started happening, did these workshops with Joan and all this kind of disc place of discovery and of being open to discovery and exploring. And, and it's part of the reason why the show feels whether it feels slightly improvised or unfolding before your eyes, um, 
that language was in me, it was in Jill, and it was fostered through these early days and workshops with Joan. But at this point, I am able to name what I feel like the camera's doing, what I'm trying for us to do, and I do operate a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do operate the camera quite a bit, but we have operators, but all of us now know that what the camera is there to do is to bear witness. And that's that's sort of the most succinct way and it gets right to the point, which is it's not about perfection. It's not about like the lighting being exactly right every time or every frame. It's not even about the frame being the best frame every second of the thing. It's it's like we're bearing witness and we're capturing what's happening before our before us. Hmm. And do you find well, like when you're operating, when you're in those scenes, are do you feel like you're a character sort of in there? Are you are you being emotionally are you finding yourself emotionally connected to what's going I feel like what I'm getting at is when I watch your work it's hard to imagine that you're not emotionally connected because the camera is kind of moving and following in in a very not choreographed mm-hmm. very organic spontaneous way yeah so so is are you finding yourself kind of emotionally in the scenes with these people yes and in fact I feel like that's what my job is mm-hmm. I feel like if I'm not feeling it then I don't know. And I mean, again, this is within the context of working in this kind of miraculous space that Jill has created and with incredible directors, including Andrea Arnold ended up coming into the fold of, you know, she's directed on transparent a few episodes and did five of I love Dick. So it's like, there are these amazing directors who are creating this space for this to be possible Mm -hmm. and seeking this in me and, uh, me wanting to be in that space as well. So yes, I'm, it's funny because I don't necessarily feel like a character, but I feel like I'm right there with them. Mm-hmm. And I do feel, as I already said, it's like if, so there are other ways, the acting, obviously the writing, the directing are going to deliver something. But for me, it's like, it's hard when I'm feeling something then I'm, I'm, I know for sure the audience is going to be feeling it. Hmm. If that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Um, and and it's an interesting process for a lot of. I mean, at this point, like our camera crew and, and the camera operators that I use have been with us for seasons now, so they get it. But when new people come in, or you know, people bump up, like um, my first AC, Shelley Gersey, uh, now three seasons ago, we we bumped her up to operator, and she's fantastic. And you know, but it's like so many people are trained to be coming into the room with one set of skills or one set of expectations. Like it's got to be right. I got to know what the frame is. I got to be, you know, yeah. about the precision, whether it's focus puller operator. And so much of what we do is not that. Yeah. It's saying, yeah. it's saying, open your heart, open your eyes and just, you know, point the camera kind of thing. Well, and open and, your heart isn't something you hear in a lot of film sets. You know, no. it's more cover your ass. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and just to, pon- just to ponder the difference uh, for a minute of that, it's like cover your ass because it's going to what? You're going to get yeah. fired. You're going to, you know, fail. You're going to suck. You're going to whatever. And, and <laughs> open your heart is like, oh man, it's a, you know, it's a risky thing to do. And again, I feel very, very fortunate that our sets are built for that. So, yeah. how, so how do you build a set for that? Like, what, like I, you know, having never been to, to any of your sets, like I just imagine mm-hmm. having been on lots of film sets to me, it feels more like it's just the camera and the directors and, 
you know, and the actors and, mm-hmm. and really n- nothing else. Like it doesn't feel like a cluttered TV mm-hmm. kind of a set where there's a million executives in video village kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Yes, there is. It, it definitely, especially at the beginning when, you know, we were, again, this may not be totally, a, a totally accurate statement, but essentially we were, you know, at the beginning of Amazon. Mm-hmm. I know there were other shows that existed. Well, you guys were the first breakout. I think you guys were yeah. the first cultural phenomenon that came out of Amazon. Yes, I, I, I think that is true as well. And but the, my point of that is that at the time, you know, there were basically three people running Amazon Studios. Oh, really? Total. Yeah, I mean, it was a <laughs> tiny little outfit. So the, one, they didn't have the people, and also they didn't know what they they were becoming. They were, you know, you know, just being you know birthed into the world kind of thing. But so uh, between that factor and also they really believed in the show and, and Jill and, and just sort of let us, you know, create this thing. Yeah. There are more people, many more people at Amazon studios, but the, the beautiful thing is that, you know, between transparent and like, I love Dick is a crazy show. I mean, it's a totally different kind of thing that yeah. people are making that we've seen. And, and the fact that Amazon is, and again, I feel like there are other shows being uh, created where it's like, this is such an incredible time, right? All these different types of stories. But as far as our process and our, and the content of the shows, it has been amazing to, to have an entity like Amazon support and let, and, and to support and trust, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there's that part. And then as I've been mentioning, like from the beginning, Jill would talk about literally creating this space where it's not about the machinery of filmmaking. It's not about, the the bell going off and you know everyone you know quieting down on the soundstage where, where it's like it bec- it becomes like a essentially there there's a thing where as opposed to you know everyone yelling out you know rolling rolling around the soundstage and the you know the the buzzer or bell or horn going off or whatever yeah. that that makes it all very uh formal and um filled with all sorts of expectation like okay now you better make it happen now it's got to happen right now. yeah yeah here we go last looks right that's right that's right that's that's the other <laughs> phrase that's shouted, right all that stuff it's like it's not about that it's like okay we you know she'll move through sometimes a lot of times we don't rehearse that's one thing so we're, we're literally watching it unfold before us for in the first couple of takes mm-hmm. on camera um but but it, it, it's this idea that we're we're honoring the actors it's about the actors it's not about the machinery we're prioritizing our time and our energies towards the acting part of it mm-hmm. you know and then along with that i have so many thoughts running in my head at the same time we'll take them all yeah exactly um my wife is used to this now <laughs> uh, we'll have a conversation like i'm thinking about three things and here they are um <laughs> is so Sometimes she's not calling action or Andrew Arnold will say on you go instead of action Mm -hmm. because it's like this kind of gentle nurturing towards, you know, okay, let's, let's explore. And at the end, in particular, Andrew Arnold will say thank you instead of cut. (laughs) So it's that kind of thing. And and Jill has her own versions of that. But um, so we got that going on. And then to support that, and, and this fits with how I, I've always liked to light anyway, naturally, or making it look like natural light. You know, even when we're on a set, I will have all the lights from outside, like it's coming in the windows, like it does in real life. Yeah. So there's not a lot of gear 
to the image that you you know conjured up in your head when you imagined our set it's like there's not a lot happening on the set in terms of film gack and gear and clutter yeah um it allows which which translates to you know the actors can move about a room and not feel like there's an angle that they can't see you know there's very it's very rare that we have to do any kind of like full turnaround lighting i'll i'll light the whole space so the actors are free to to use it and then the scene takes shape within that so already you can see how like the emotional space that's made is now translated into physical space yeah yeah and from there we just start again a phrase that jill uh has uttered many many times it's like we're the community of possibility or this is you know it's all about the discovery so that feeling you're getting in the camera work is also the actors are given that same kind of freedom mm-hmm. to you know she'll say hey look if the words on the page don't sound like exactly feel weird coming out of your mouth or uncomfortable like you wouldn't say it that way say it how you want to say it so that opens up the dialogue for the actors and between that and them knowing that they can uh use the space and then the other huge thing and this is the difference again between open your heart and cover your ass is again it, it stemmed from jill and and i think that i hope that there are other show creators, showrunners, producers, directors, whatever out there that foster the same kind of thing because it brings out so much creativity to say this, there are no mistakes. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, the actors have a thing where it's like, they call it on a take, they'll say, Let, let's fuck this one up. Knowing that they can play and f- fail, quote unquote. Yeah. Or, you know, that you're, there's not the pressure of like, you better, you better not fuck it up. You better cover your ass. You better do it right. You know, on all levels, all, you know, from every member of the crew on through the cast, it's like to be set free from that idea Yeah, that there aren't mistakes that we might do something again, or the director might want something different or, you know, an actor might forget a whole chunk of a scene, but it's, it's like everyone's relieved of that pressure, which only makes us, a feel more connected and b do i think much more creative work in our day the trick of that to to such a great degree to me seems like you have to have a producer who's okay with that yes you know because so much of what's expected in television is just kind of results driven not process driven right and when you're creating something through a process that might be messy or it might take more time but like, what is your interaction with the producers when you, especially even when you started doing the show? Cause it's, it's just an unconventional way to do a right. television series. Right. I mean, I was going to say, you know, cause I've gone and done other things in between seasons and I have pondered the idea of even beginning to speak like this with, you know, these new producers that don't know me from, you know, any other DP or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, while I, there may be a situation that at some point where I would feel comfortable saying, Hey, check this out. This is how we, you know, and, and imagine that doing that here. Um, there may come a day when I'm able to do that. But what I really realized is you need everybody from, you know, I don't even want to say the top, but like the people running the whole thing, the producers to be, you know, yeah, uh, down with this or on board. And, and because Jill, did this from the very 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 beginning when we shot the pilot of transparent um and we even did it a bit on on it started to emerge on on afternoon delight but 
that as she, you know, as producers came on and, and then it became the first season, it, it all, what it takes is the leader to say, this is how we're going to do it. And check this out because we're all connected in this way, we actually move with more efficiency that it's, it can translate into, you know, time, which is money, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it definitely takes, you know, everybody agreeing to that ethos that, you know, that, yeah, work, yeah. that, that working style. Well, and I and mean, so far so good. It's more of a question for her, I suppose, but the courage that it must've taken on, this is the first TV show that she created that got yeah. greenlit to go in such an unconventional production model, you yeah. know, for, let's forget a second about kind of the revolutionary nature of the material itself that she was, the story she was trying to tell. Mm. To, to go with something like that, like to me, that just it, it's it's inspirational that somebody could come up with an idea that was so out of the box, but also so out of the box in terms of how you were going to do it mm-hmm. and and sort of the level of expectation that she had for you and for the cast and for the crew, which, you know, I mean, somebody like Jeffrey Tambor has been in a gazillion television shows right. since the 1970s, but I bet he's never had an opportunity to work in this manner. No. And, and the cast will talk about that. And that's something that like a person, an actor will show up for a day as a, you know, supporting in a you know, bit part or whatever, or background artists, you know, the extras like across the board time and time again, people say like, I've never felt so welcomed and yeah. accepted and, you know, all that stuff. And again, it's like, wouldn't it be nice if every realm of our lives were like that? <laughs> and, I, and I will say like, it's actually helped me as a parent. I have two daughters who are now 19 and 16 and, uh, but just this idea of letting go of expectation of being more in the moment of uh, being open to whatever. And also just that whole, like that whole idea of like, there aren't mistakes. Now that doesn't mean that I don't have, you know, issues or in there are with my children. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's definitely in, in a surprising way, you know, bled over into my personal life as well. So let's back up a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, your, your background, Mm -hmm. uh, education, how you became a gaffer, how how Mm -hmm. you, how you fell into all this stuff. So my very first desire as a kid growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin was to be a Muppeteer. (laughs) And I, you know, this is back in, you know, the days of the original Muppet show. And I was a, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I started, you know, buying, collecting puppets. And I started doing like puppet shows for the neighborhood kids and like, you know, saved an old refrigerator box in my basement and then the, the, the Muppet Show had a fan club where you could get a newsletter each month and it would have all the you know background on an individual performer and just you know silly articles and puzzles and whatever but around the time the original Muppet movie came out they started doing showing behind the scenes photos of how they did some of the stuff and I was completely hypnotized and, and you know intrigued by who are all those people and how the, like the magic makers of a film set, you know? Yeah. And, and something in me shifted. It's like, I want to go play there. I want to get to that, you know, curious, odd, magical <laughs> place. And then, th- you know, in high school, I started making short films with my, a group of friends and the whole idea I, I could feel in me was like, I'm getting, you know, I'm going to end up in Hollywood someday kind of thing. Um, so this is all like super eight kind of filmmaking. Uh, no, it was actually high eight video. Actually, the very first thing I did was a Rambo parody called Flambo. <laughs> high eight. No, that was actually, it was a video camera. I, I'm pretty sure it took VHS tapes, but it was the camera 
and then this huge hose coming out of the camera and then the deck that had the tape. I remember those. Yeah. Like you slung over your shoulder and a friend of mine's father, you know, was the AV guy at some high school somewhere and ended up getting his hands on, you know, this was like brand new, exciting yeah, yeah. technology. So we shot with that. And then of course, by the, you know, I think I was probably 15 at that point. And then by the end of high school, it had shrunk down to high tapes, mm -hmm. but that's what we were, you know, working with. And then I ended up going to NYU for film school and nice. uh, yeah, loving that adventure of life and then after that came out here i mean you know at that point was i saying to myself oh i want to be a gaffer a dp i actually just wanted to be you know in the film business of course probably you know my younger self would have said yeah i want to be a director and all that which is what i think everyone's going to film school to do right of course i ended up writing with a dear friend of mine who actually uh, is now a very successful dp as well uh, named Chris Kachikas and Chris and I tried our hand at writing a couple of scripts and he was already getting work uh, as an electrician on film jobs. So he's like, you know, I'll, I'll get you in on some jobs and then that way we can have the same writing schedule because we'll have the same work schedule. And it was interesting because I very quickly took to lighting and, and wasn't even a, a, an electrician for that long before I had an opportunity to gaffer a guy who I went to film school with and um really loved lighting and mm -hmm. kind of was this surprise to me how it wasn't a surprise in, in terms of some things that i re then remembered from my childhood in terms of like what drew my eye like just the way that sunlight broke up you know through yeah you know like dappled light or whatever i remember having these hits of of things that that i wasn't surprised to see them showing up in the way that i did lighting or then later on when the way i shot but Anyway, it, it was a it was an exciting thing to think like, oh, it was just a day job to support this other thing. And now here I am getting this deeper creative satisfaction being a gaffer. And then that kind of started morphing uh, at a certain point into I had opportunities to do like an extra camera on a commercial job or something. And and again, sort of had this surprise happen where it's like, Oh wait, this is really great. Mm -hmm. This is this is speaking to me. Like my my you know innards, my soul or whatever, lighting <laughs> up. My creative soul is getting really lit up. And so it was this path that I wouldn't have expected, but it it was and continues to be a joyful one. You know, to suddenly be like, what a playground! What a place to get to discover play. And you know, whether it was commercials, what was great about commercials, you got to do it often. You know, with different directors and figure out how to work with different people and, you know, a new kind of opportunity each job. And then it, it's only gotten more amazing with narrative. Was there a time where you were like, I'm done with gaffing and I'm moving on to being a DP or I'm, I'm going to start moving in that direction. Was there a time where it just became clear that that was what you wanted to pursue? So I was gaffing for this DP named Joaquin Bacase, who's also now for probably over a decade now, has been directing and shoots all his own stuff in the commercial world. And he and I were dear friends from film school. He's the guy who shot all of Mike Mills stuff. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, and I started getting opportunities to do camera every now and then with Joaquin. And then he get, he got hired to do this massive Sony job for their Bravia TV campaign. I think this was 2003 with all the super balls bouncing down the hills of San Francisco. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So Joaquin and I share DP credit on that because what happened was 
we go up there. It's a massive shoot. There were eight cameras. You know, those bouncy balls were all real. They'd flown them in from, you know, all parts of the world. And so, and, and like, just Jesus. normally on a job, you know, as a gaffer, it's like you go scout and then you're done. And the DP has other prep work to do, perhaps with the director. But this thing was so massive that, you know, figuring out where the cameras could all be and not see each other. And I was going to be assigned to a camera. So that was already going to be part of my experience. But, you know, I'm up in San Francisco. I'm kind of wandering around the streets and I realize Joaquin is in, you know, the war room, you know, in this conference room in this hotel. Like, they have so much organizing, so much figuring out to do. So I figure I'll just see if they need help. And I, I ended up sitting, coming into this room, let's say it was noon on, on the day before that we're going to start shooting. And at 10 o'clock PM, we're still there. And then out of the blue, Joaquin gets a phone call from somebody in New York saying that his wife has been taken to the hospital for some emergency. The good news is that she ended up being okay. But in that moment, Joaquin basically stood up and said, I'm, I got to get to my wife back in New York. And he, you know, talked to the producer who was at one end of the room and, and left the room and, and everyone kind of sat there silently. And in a moment that was totally without conscious, you know, awareness or like ego or anything, I just said, I could shoot it. Cause I had been in this, t- you know, 10 hour powwow about where all the cameras are going to be and everything like that. And the producers and director went into the other room for a few minutes and came back out and said, okay, you're going to shoot it. So I, and, I, I really remember this super clearly. So, so the, the crazy part of this experience, well, there were many crazy parts at the time. I was really worried about my friend and his wife. I had spoken up and said, I can do something. And now was in the, you know, we had a five o'clock AM call and I don't think I got to bed before two o'clock because I was saying to myself, can I do this? Can I do this? What's going to (laughs) happen? There's 24 people in the camera department. They have no idea that I'm going to show up on the set and say, I'm shooting this because it's, it happened so late that nobody knew. And, um, you know, the next morning I was shitting in my pants until the first (laughs) launch of the first, you know, 75,000 Super Bowls went down the street. And it was so incredible. And, you know, we had like, okay, this is the frame for this camera. This is the frame for that camera. But what we realized is that the balls take so long to get down from the top of the hill to the bottom that you can make six different frames so that suddenly to be in the moment of what's happening and realize, oh, I can make creative choices and, you know, felt totally comfortable talking to the other camera operators so that by, you know, midday on the first day, I was like, okay, if I can handle the craziness of this and the 24 people camera department and all the cameras and be having a good time and feel grounded in myself. This is telling me something like I want to be a DP (laughs) is what it's telling me. So then to answer your question, it was interesting because my daughters were young. Both my wife and I were working in the film business to, you know, pay our bills and to declare oneself. I'm no longer a gaffer. I now want to be a DP many people do that and there's you know and what an incredible first gig right i mean i mentioned before that mike's thing that was the first like a, this was sort of a uh we'll say accidental or you know coincidental scenario but just say to myself i want this or i'm ready to say to my wife i want to go for this for us to talk through what that's going to mean potentially you know to our household income and you're you know it's, it's a big risk right it's like it's, it's vulnerable, exposing yourself, whatever, and risking 
also not because once you also kind of declare you can't necessarily go back right yeah to, you can but it's you know anyway so it took a while for me to get to the point to say i want this out loud and i'm declaring it to the world my wife was beautifully supportive and and it was funny because it was literally i forget the timeline between the bouncy balls and mike's documentary but it was probably if let's just say i said out loud i want this in december in january or early february mike asked me to do his documentary so it was the kind of to me it was the kind of thing where it's like you open yourself and you say yes and then the universe is going to hear that and you know say yes back kind of hmm. thing so there was you know just because that had happened that didn't the, the bouncy ball thing that didn't suddenly make it like everyone's going to hire me as a dp or even know that i'm a dp it was more about me realizing that i was ready yeah so again it's not like whatever the timeline was between when it came you know when we shot it and when the commercial came out and then the other parts that i've already talked about it's like um i knew i would have to next build a reel so again it wasn't like that one experience was going to be the golden ticket yeah so so your next challenge was to go about building a reel. And mm -hmm. even though you're working on a documentary just a few months later, like one of the people that we'd interviewed was Charles Pappert, who, mm -hmm. who shot like all of Key and Peele. Right. And Charles was was like a top notch Steadicam guy and worked on scrubs and worked on office space and did like all these big Steadicam jobs and had been focused on that his whole life. And then one day sold his Steadicam and said, I'm only a DP. Like, mm -hmm. And people were like, oh, so if we get you, we don't get the Steadicam too. He's like, correct. Right. We'll hire a Steadicam operator. I'm the DP. Like he had to make kind of a clean break, mm -hmm. which is different than being a gaffer because, you know, you show up on set as a gaffer, you show up on set as a DP. Like, you know, there might be a little bit of different gear, but it's not like, mm -hmm. you know, a specialty mm -hmm. rig. So you did you make a clean break from being a gaffer at that point? And how did you go about building the reel? Well, kind of as I mentioned before. So and again, this was something that I was aware of because I had known other gaffers or other first ACs who declared I want to, you know, I'm now a DP and it didn't work out for whatever reason, you know, or they had like two or three years of total drought yeah. before they could, you know, scrape together enough gigs to like for people to start looking at them in that way. And for me, it was, it was this, I was just very lucky and very fortunate in terms of these relationships that, that had been building that I was not necessarily even aware of that would pay off in this way, but that as I mentioned, once uh, Mike Mills hired me for the documentary, then Dayton Ferris hired me for the this Red Hot Chili Peppers thing, and it was basically seamless. So I had a very small window between saying I'm a DP now to you know having an agent and having a reel. Mm -hmm. It was probably six months. That's not bad at all. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I I felt blessed. Yeah. Yeah. And how does Jill Soloway come into your life? How do you how do you end up getting uh, getting the meeting about Afternoon Delight? I was in to let's say now I've been shooting ten years, eleven years officially. If it's since two thousand three, then well, that was the commercial, but then mm -hmm. it came out, and I mean the documentary thing with Mike was two thousand. It's hard for me to remember. I'm getting old, now, but <laughs> uh, so I was having a successful career doing commercials and working steadily and and uh happily but really itching really really itching to do narrative and it was that this you know beautiful irony of my agent or i would try and get a meeting or i would get a meeting and and you know the, the 
the result would be, well, but Jim hasn't done a feature before. And that thing of like, well, how do you get a feature unless you've shot a feat? You know, they're yeah. saying we can't hire you because you haven't shot a feature, but how then how do you get your first gig, right? So knowing that I really wanted to get it, I kept, you know, asking my agent to kind of keep their eye out. And and one day I got an email from my agent saying, Hey, there's this tiny, you know, million dollar budget indie film. This woman, Jill Soloway, who used to write and produce on Six Feet Under, and I loved that show. I actually remembered Jill's name because there were certain episodes that were standout and I would kind of mentally note like writer and director of those episodes and, you know, got the script in the email attachment and knowing the the timing was I was heading out of town and she was going to start meeting with DPs. I was heading out of town for a commercial job and I was like, well, I want to get to meet her. So I didn't even have time to read the full script before uh, I said yes to the meeting. I did read it before we met, but it was sort of this hurried thing of like, see if she, I can meet her on a Saturday, even though that wasn't expected. And we met and sat down. And as I mentioned, we very, very quickly were speaking the same language and, and it was clear. And so we sit down, have this incredible meeting. I'm the first DP that she's met. She goes back to her producers and says, I want to work with Jim. I feel like and this is gonna be the thing. It just feels on all levels, the content of the movie, my feeling from Jill, our creative, you know, connection. And I meet the producers. They say, you know, feel very positively towards me, but they take her aside and they say, you know, this is to Jill. This is your first feature. We don't feel comfortable with you as a first time feature director having a first time feature DP. And again, the way that Jill wanted to shoot it, the style, the lighting, everything, it was clear that I could deliver based on the stuff I had done. But they said, we really feel strongly about this. And so she honored that because she was a new, new quote unquote, first time feature director, despite all her years and years of experience in the business. And so that was that she called me up and I was really surprised and in, in, in a way you could say heartbroken and just felt like, wait a minute, this does not feel right at all. And then a month or so passes by and one morning I get a text it was a Friday morning. It's from Jill. It says, please tell me you're still available to shoot my movie. The DP just dropped out. And she was at the Silver Lake Reservoir with this person. And, and uh, he let her know that he needed to take a, another job out of the country, uh, like a two-week commercial or something. And, you know, and so as Jill would describe it, it's like she was literally like texting me on the side, you know, while... <laughs> this person is nearby because um, oh. any, anyway the the point was it was this thing and so uh i said hell yes i'm available by noon on that morning we had already met and now we were at a camera house checking out lenses oh wow and then that afternoon i went and scouted the main house location and three days later we started shooting <laughs> that's and, crazy and it's this crazy i mean crazy is the perfect word because looking back on that i mean it was obviously we were you know again whatever you think about destiny or fate or whatever it's like the collaboration that has come from that and the fact that you know there was a window of time when it's like well no i'm not working with her on that movie and then you know at the last hour coming in and everything that has you know come from our collaboration since then is sort of it's wacky 
and amazing. And I feel like, you know, there have been many, many times when I wanted to thank that other DP for, <laughs> for, and for whatever reason. Felt, you, I'm not saying name them, but do you know who it is? I could, I, the, I don't have their name in my brain right now, but I can easily yeah. find it or, you know, upon reflection, look it up. But, but the, you know, the real point was like, I think there was something in him that didn't feel like he was in the right place and needed to go someplace else, or maybe he just needed to really pay the bills and take this two week job. But it all came together as it was supposed to. Well, and sometimes uh, you'll, you'll hear these stories where somebody loses out on a job and, but it's still in the producer or the director or whatever's head mm-hmm. and them being open and not, not having an ego or whatever about it there, you know, when the person that that person for whatever reason went with drops out, you're, you're their yeah. first thought. And we always hear about it with actors where, you know, right. like, you know, it's right. like Eddie Murphy was the third choice for Beverly Hills Cop or whatever. And you're like, really? who were the other two? First it was two like, uh, I forget. I mean, he might've been the second. Cho- it was originally gonna be Sylvester Stallone. Oh, wow. Totally different movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you'll hear it about actors right, where, right. where it's like Hugh Jackman wasn't supposed to be Wolverine. It was this other actor. And then it's like, well, suddenly that person isn't available. And then, right. And then a career is, is kind of born. And, right. you know, with you and Jill Soloway. Like, I feel like the two of you have kind of created a style. It's interesting because I don't see people trying to rip it off, probably mm. because it's a lot harder to achieve mm. than than you might think. Mm. You know, like, I think that as a viewer, it's not like a flashy style with right. a lot with drone shots and right. techno crane shots or whatever. It's intimacy, right. which is probably the hardest thing to achieve mm. on, on a set, but it's because you guys have a, a specific discipline. I actually know somebody who I think is a scenic artist on your show, Hillary. Mm-hmm. And she was saying, she was telling me that you guys do a thing before you shoot where anyone who wants to go up and say anything in front of the, the entire crew. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was talking about that. Yeah. I mean, and again, that that's an amazing it's amazing because it's so unique and like, would you ever expect something like that on a film set? No, it's could, more like Could you talk about it? Could, could you describe it? She's told me about it, but right. <laughs> I love the box. The box is something that again, it started probably in season one when we would have big scenes and like many, many like a hundred or so background artists, extras. And Jill would get up on this, you know, to, to be seen more easily by the whole crowd. She would get on a Apple box and say, you know, I want you guys to know that just like I was sharing with you before about how we, the whole crew has been uh, informed about how we want to run the set. The background extras here, the words, you know, there are no mistakes. You can't do anything wrong. No one's going to yell at you, tell you you're doing something. And she would say, you know, you guys are a living painting and, you know, decide if this is a big party scene, decide who you are at the party. Who do you know? Who do you not know? You know, give yourself, have fun with your art, have fun with why, you know, why you want to be in the film business, like get to play. And that's another thing she would say is like, you know, we, we start our day with gratitude that we get to come to work and, and play and make play Mm -hmm. create. So it it was every now and then these, these box moments when particularly when we had these big uh, scenes with background artists, and then I think it was the beginning of season two at this very start of the season, Jill got up and said some things and then asked me to say some things and a couple other people. And Jill and I looked at each other and we were like, we should do this. Why not do this every day? So since then, every morning, and again, can you imagine being a producer and saying, oh yeah, we're going to start the, <laughs> we're gonna have the first 20 minutes of our day is going to be the crew gathered around while people get up and share things. And sometimes somebody says like, hey, you know, we had a really hard day the other day and the props, you know, we had so many, you know, we had the dinner scene and the, they're basically thanking their, co- you know, team members or colleagues or whatever in their department 
say, hey, you guys really had my back and thanks for that. That that could be their moment on the box. Some people get up and uh, talk about going through cancer or, you know, some like uh, as another example, it's like someone remembering, uh, you know, they had a dear friend who had died a year before and just wanted to, you know, acknowledge that but to the whole crew. Mm-hmm. And and so it can get very, very personal. It's often uh, true that by, you know, 8 a.m. everyone's in tears because of what was shared on the box. And then, um, and sometimes it's hilarious. I mean, sometimes it's just meant to be like, there's one guy, uh, Ira, who is from the prop department, who was a cheerleader in college. So in some days when you could just like, you could feel the energy of the crew is dragging because of, you know, it's the end of a long week or whatever. His box moment would be to, you know, make everybody dance or do some kind of crazy summer camp type of cheer <laughs> and just kind of activate the crew. And it, so it's all a range of those things. But again, the whole point is like, we're all in this together and, and it, it builds this whole dynamic and community of where you respect, everyone has respect for each other and is watching out for each other. There's no like, Oh, you're just a PA or you're just this or, you know, yeah. It, and it, people still get uptight or tense or, you know, there's miscommunication and there's all that stuff. But with this foundation between all the other stuff, you know, in, in the print terms of the principles of how we shoot, then also starting the day with the box again, makes for a coherent, you know, everyone is working harder for each other. If that makes sense. So did any of this translate to, I love Dick? Did, did yep. you, we do, we did the box and you know, we took the box to Marfa. We've, that's the other thing is people sign the box once they've been on it. So it has all these, you know, mm-hmm. signatures and whatnot. And, um, we, we did it in Texas and you know, the Texas crew got up and they were like, I've never experienced anything like this. This is so incredible. This is so amazing to feel, you know, so welcome. And there's the embrace. Mm-hmm. Of did the, the Texas crew have any kind of pushback against kind of the, the intimacy that you were, that you were trying to create I, on set? If they did, I don't, you only heard from the people who uh, got up on the box to say, thank you, or, mm-hmm. or this is amazing. Or I, and then shared themselves. I mean, and, and, you know, just in terms of like what's going on in our country or like, you know, I'm not talking about everyone being like a progressive touchy feely liberal, like myself mm-hmm. on the crew, like they're, you know, the medic from Texas got up and shared some things and we've had teamsters get up and people who you would necessarily feel like are going to be willing to be in the vulnerable touchy feely thing mm-hmm. that they, and oftentimes those are the most surprising and most moving because you see somebody who like seems hard as a rock on the outside. Yeah. And yet here they are sharing something very personal or whatever. So I'm sure there are some people and, and it's gotten to the point where people know that they don't have to get up. Then there's not like that. Oh, you've never gotten up. Mm-hmm. Although I do, you know, tease some, you know, some of the electricians that didn't get up much. I would kind of, <laughs> I would kind of just look at them. But at this point, everyone knows it's like, it's about the shared community moment as opposed to like making sure everyone gets up there at some point. Yeah. 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 So when, when you go to move into doing, I love Dick from transparent, mm-hmm. is it driven by the story or were there any like conscious things you wanted to do aesthetically to differentiate the two shows from one another to, to, to kind of put a different stamp on it? Mm-hmm. Well, that was definitely on our minds because the produ- you know, the producing team pretty much came over intact from uh, transparent. And then, you know, I was there, Kat Smith, our amazing production designer came over, Marie Schley, who does work, uh, costume, you know, all these people from transparent came over. So it's like, there was an awareness, like we didn't want it to just feel like transparent, you know, in Texas. 
and the, the good news is that we didn't even have to that worry went away very quickly when we scouted marfa and jill and i were just kind of wandering around like we'd take these early morning walks having nothing to do with location scouting but just being in the town and kind of marveling at the landscape and the color palette of the you know the light in the early part or of the day or just the colors of looking out across the grasses and flowers of these wide open plains and all that and then you know all the houses are pretty much like kind of blanched out adobe structures but yet you meet these people in town and they're very vivid characters and eccentric and whether it's and then you got this crazy mashup of it truly feels like it could be Brooklyn or Silver Lake there because there's so many young hipsters and, you know, a coffee shop where you can pay nine bucks for a latte and, you know, people are Airbnb and all that. And then you've got um, migrant workers and uh, Border Patrol people and, you know, rich oil, you know, p- people's families who are in the, you know, huge ranching business or oil business, whatever. And so this kind of crazy mix of humanity in this tiny little town 200 miles from nowhere but everything is sort of very, very vivid. Mm-hmm. And and so for me and in and, and talking with Jill, it's like we want we want to capture both aspects where it's this sort of the, the soft beauty of the land and also the vividness of, of the people. And, and even in the landscape, it's like, as I've described, it's like the, the color of the light was so incredible and especially in the morning or at the end of the day in, in ways that I have never seen, you know, and I've been in different parts of the world and I've traveled across the country for road trips, but it's like something about the West Texas light or maybe the time of year or whatever. But then, then you'd get these huge, huge cloud formations and sometimes storms where you could see the storms from, you know, 20 miles away moving mm-hmm. towards you and hail storms in the middle of a very bright sunny day would come through. Anyway, the, like the, the, the sky, the blue of the sky and these huge clouds and everything. So uh, even in the land, it's like there's this bold in your face kind of quality to mm-hmm. it. So all that for me translated into how we shot it, which is one, just s- making sure that we are there at the right times of day to, to see these things that I witnessed, but also in terms of the lens choice and the color palette, we talked a lot about this idea that it, it sort of, on the one hand sort of a detached cool thing happening but also vivid you know and i say in your face but that sounds a little aggressive it's just more like won't be denied and what i love reflecting on is that that those are sort of the the temperatures of the show as well it's like you've got you know the cool detached dick character kevin bacon and then you've got this the town itself, but really Chris Krause, Catherine Hahn's character coming in and being like, here I am and you're going to know who I am and you're, and my voice will be heard as I discover my desire and my art. So it's sort of this, the bold factor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, between, so I know that, you know, there was a lot of talk about the, like there's this red dress that shows up, you know, in I Love Dick that represents the the more bold factor and 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 other costume choices but and then in the production design it was sort of like let's do our best to replicate marfa when we're not in marfa because we shot most of it here um but even then just like the the palette chosen for dick's world versus you know Catherine hans character and then for me it ended up i i went and tested a bunch of different vintage lenses at panavision hollywood with guy mcvicker who's awesome awesome lens guru and 
ended up really responding to the Baltars, Baltars, uh, which I feel like had that combination of qualities that I described where it's like, there's something overall in the cooler tones and, and yet things, colors still pop that don't feel too crazy or too, you know, video saturated. Well, and we, we don't talk about tech here a lot, but I, I think that because of the style that you shoot in, I don't want to, I don't want to get like mired in tech, mm -hmm. but what guides your choice of a camera mm -hmm. for the kind of stuff you shoot? We shot I Love Dick on the same camera that we've used for Transparent, which is the Canon C300 Mark II. And that has been my camera of choice and the camera that uh, has delivered the goods since we, we shot the pilot of Transparent with the Alexa and then we had a couple quieter, intimate scenes, some involving sex, some not, where we were, Jill and I talked about how do we shrink the footprint or our presence yeah. in the room even more. And at that time, the C500 was what we chose to use and we both loved the look of that in the pilot so when it came time to shoot season one of transparent we said let's go with that smaller with the canon camera mm -hmm. from then so that's been the go-to camera since and then you know they upgraded their models and the thing now shoots 4k so for the last couple seasons of transparent we've used the mark ii and as we did on dick so it it in that way the camera suits everything else we talked about in terms of the amount of handheld and we don't only do handheld, but there's a lot of it. And then wanting the intimacy thing. And, and there's a version of the camera that we shrink down as much as possible. And I'll hold it right here. And I'll, like right on your chest. Yeah. Yeah. Right on my chest or, you know, um, I, I mean, it's very light and easy to move around. Not after 20 minute takes, it doesn't feel like, <laughs> or, or like but it's, it's sort of the, it, it's the thing that the scenes that feel the most intimate and connected are shot in that way. Really? With me operating. Yeah. Why is that? That's well, I, I don't know exactly why it is more so than, you know, if it's a handheld camera on the shoulder, but mm -hmm. I can just get a lot closer. I can move into more unique positions or, you know, for some reason I can respond more unconsciously, organically, whatever to what the actors are doing in, in the little compact mode. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I always I always feel like one of the one of the challenges of the smaller cameras is you know if like when, the reason you want an Alexa is because it'll move with your waist. Yes, and if you have a smaller camera, it's just your wrist. So sometimes the handheld, and, right? And I sometimes I exactly the handheld it'll look yeah. jankety, right. but that's not how your stuff looks. Yeah, well, I think that's why I use my you know you sternum like, or whatever. Like you're yeah. bracing it against your chest most of the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, so it's almost using like your whole <laughs> your torso in yeah. a sense. Yeah. And those cameras are so light that you can just kind of hold it like that. They, they, at the beginning of the take, yes, they're very light. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, I mean, I say that because it's like, it's amazing to do and the actors love it and I actually love it too, but it's like we shoot 25 minute or 30 minute takes. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, get a, a huge bounty of, of fantastic moments and footage. of. Take me into stuff. that world. What is a 25 minute take like? Have you had a chance to watch I Love Dick? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Well, I'll try and think of. I watched of the, other examples, the, the trailer of it. My my wife is a giant fanboy of it, and actually went to a Q and A. Uh, it was the day that we were supposed to do your interview. That night, she uh, went, she went to a Q and A at uh, I think it was the Harmony Gold. Okay. My wife is way 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 into it. That's cool. Well, there's there's a in this case there's a, a sex scene, although it's well there's a couple scenes, but uh, I'll talk about the sex scene first. It's in the beginning of the second episode, and you know not knowing, I actually don't want to do too many spoilers, but 
not knowing exactly what's going to happen. It's not just like two people having sex. They start dancing and then they're flapping on the bed. And, and is it okay to do a little spoiler? Do you think? Uh, I think it's fine. Okay. In the scene, while Catherine Hahn's character, Chris is having sex with her husband, Silver, uh, in her mind, Dick is in the room watching them from a chair across the way. And so the idea was, you know, we just start rolling and Catherine and, and Griffin Dunn just are, they're both being playful and it involves these letters and maybe they're going to pause and read letters or they're going to do whatever crazy stuff they're going to do. And then at a certain point, you know, as Chris envisions Dick, then the camera's going to go find Dick. So I end up dancing around the room with the, the two of them. And then w when I see the look on Catherine's face, like, oh, she's now conjuring Dick, you know, that's my cue to then like leave the bed and find Dick. And then I'm over with Dick for a while and then come back to the bed. And I will tell you that after the, <laughs> the first take when Kevin Bacon was sitting in the chair afterwards, he just looked at me and he was like, did not see all that coming. Like just the, the risk that these guys were taking and also the lunacy of the scene and, and everything. And you'll, it'll make more sense once you see it. But, and out of it, that 25 minute take, how long is the scene that you're cutting? How, how long was the scene as cut? Uh, let's say it's probably 50 seconds uh -huh. or maybe a little longer, but you know, and then there's another scene later in the series when there's a real crisis going on. And, but like you do in a real relationship, it's not just three seconds of shouting and then the moment's yeah. over. It's like these two characters are really at odds, but yet they lie down on the couch and their bodies are sort of entwined. And they, uh, in this case, are smoking weed to try and, you know, connect or calm down or whatever. And they end up talking a lot about their relationship. Mm -hmm. It goes on for a while. And it's just this, it's a very realistic, very believable, touching where you really, you know, there's a lot of crazy shenanigans in the show, almost like uh, there, there's like a lot of, there's a lot of pratfalls, we'll just say, mm -hmm. some pratfalls. And then there are these quiet moments where uh, it's not about, you know, the game of the letters or is Dick going to read them and what's going to happen and all this stuff. It's just like, here's what it feels like to be in this marriage that is, has been adrift for a while. And do they still, are they still able to see each other? So they're on the couch and I'm just documenting bearing witness, as I said earlier, this thing that went on for 20 minutes or so. And, and that scene is actually in the, in the episode is probably almost a third of the episode. So like 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah. And how much of that is improvised or is any of it improvised? There's always room for Im improv, um, but it's always on the spine. I mean, it never drifts away like jokes to be jokey or what shouldn't, you know, just just to try to see how weird things can get. It's it's always around the guts of the scene. Mm -hmm. But the actors are so good and Jill and Sarah Gubbins, who co-created the thing, and then, you know, whichever director was in the room, always the actors knew that that, that was always available to them mm -hmm. to if something just comes out of their mouth, that's totally cool. So at this juncture, it's a little hard for me to remember, but I would say there's both in transparent and I love Dick. There's probably, you know, in each scene, there's some lines that have been created on the spot or whatever. And in that particular scene I'm talking about, there was probably a good amount of improv mm -hmm. just as they found their way to the, the deeper parts of the scene. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, another kind of stock question that I ask, but, I, but I, 
kind of wanted to understand your relationship with Jill Soloway, and I don't know if that would, if this would inform your answer, is sort of like if you were to create in a laboratory the perfect director to work with you, what would that director be like? Like how what's the perfect collaboration for you with a director? Um, I think I have it. I mean, I think I really have it. You know, with Jill, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it suits me. Again, it's like there are different. If I've learned anything as I've grown older, it's like. There are different ways, and you know, as, as, as you pointed out too, it's like you give a script to you know five different DPs, it's going to come out a certain way, or five different directors. Yeah. But I feel hugely fortunate and very lucky, and also like I, as Jill was kind of discovering her voice, I was also discovering mine. Mm-hmm. You know that um, I can I go to the movies or I go you know watch TV or whatever, and there are things that I am stunned by visually, and I think. I don't know if I can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am also at the point where it's like, but I know that that's also because I'm a different kind of DP or a different kind of artist and, and the type of, which doesn't mean to say that I, you know, don't want to keep growing or expanding, but, yeah. but I, when I'm moving around the room with the camera, intuiting things in that feeling connected space, it's like, it does not, there's nothing more satisfying. And to have directors who, recognize that in me or see that as what you know my unique gift is to the room or to the set it's an amazing place to be you know to to be supported in that and to be that that is requested of me to bring my whole self if that makes sense that's great i i actually think that's probably a good place to leave it unless there's anything else you wanted to talk about i feel good where can people find your work if they want to find it online I do have a website that is sorely needing an update. <laughs> Don't we all? Jimfrona.com. I'm on the, you know, a little bit of social media with Instagram under my name and uh, also uh, Twitter under my name, though I rarely go on those. I find it very uh, depressing. <laughs> not, I mean, <laughs> not depressing, lately. but it's like I, I'm depressed by how much time I can oh. waste, <laughs> you know, drifting around in there. And anyway, yeah. I always admire people who aren't on Facebook at all. I, I they go must on have, once a, like every six weeks. Yeah, they, yeah. You, you must have hours more in the day than and then everyone else you ever meet well cool well thank you jim thanks for coming out we really I appreciate, appreciate talking with you thank you so that was jim frona jim thanks for coming on the show so Ilya, who's our war story from today well ben our war story is from shalada bruce christensen perfect you said her name perfectly i, I think it was mostly perfect but but anyway shalada is a fantastic cinematographer and she has a bananas war story that i think we're all about to enjoy but in case you're not familiar with her work she shot a little movie uh, a couple years ago called fences fences maybe on the train maybe you saw that one and now molly's game already nominated for a couple golden globe awards i think is i think she's going to be nominated for best cinematography by the oscars mark my words wow that's 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 a that's a bold prediction you saw it here first there's there's a lot of competition this year it's a really but you know Beautiful work, beautiful work, movie, and it's an Aaron Sorkin movie, yep, and yeah. it's like she made a she made a movie look like an Aaron Sorkin movie needs to look. Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, it's like yeah, it's a it's got all the things you want in an Aaron Sorkin movie. It's fantastic. Yes, it's smart and sexy, just right. like Aaron Sorkin. Let Let's stop talking and uh, and and hear the war story. And now war stories. After doing the first movie with Thomas Vinderberg called Submarino, I was so excited that he had decided to ask me to do a second movie with him called The Hunt. 
I've read the script several times and it was one of the best scripts I've read. Anyway, I'm getting all ready for it and everything and then I found out that I was pregnant. We'd spoken already about the style of the movie and, and I knew that most of the work was going to be handheld. I thought this is going to be a no for me making this movie with Thomas. So I get in the car and drive up to his summer house and knock his door and say I got something to say. And he looked at me and said, you're pregnant. I don't know what it is, how men can just see without knowing. I for sure did not give it away. I, I looked totally normal and he just said, you're pregnant. And I said, that's the case. And I'm so sorry, but I'm going to be like eight months pregnant when you're shooting the hunt. So I'm so, so sorry. And he said, well, what's wrong with you? What? Well, that's not an illness. I'm sure you can still do the movie. And I was like, sure if you think that's okay with everybody and he's like well we'll just get somebody who can stand in if something is a problem i think that's the attitude in denmark is like you, you get on with it unless there is a problem if there's a problem we fix it but we don't have to fix the problem and if you're pregnant it's not an illness so everybody just kind of got on with it we went through the entire movie i never felt stronger we rearranged this easy rig so I could keep it all going. We finished the movie and here comes the day where I'm supposed to give birth to my little Vera. And I turn up and I say to the doctors, I, I, I don't know how, I mean, I missed all the chats and everything that you have to do, the checks and things. I don't know how I'm going to do this. And they said, well, just do what we say. And finally, they say you can push, and I pushed and I pushed. And apparently, I developed so many muscles around my hips because of this easy rig <laughs> that I nearly killed the baby. And these doctors were screaming like, "You're squeezing the baby! You're squeezing the baby!" I was the worst at giving birth ever because of this easy rig and shooting a movie. But I can only recommend to shoot movies when you're pregnant because it it makes you even stronger. now short ends so that was charlotta bruce christensen thank you very much and look forward to her episode pretty damn fast because we're trying to get it out during award season that's right that's right so uh ben short end you got a short end uh yes i do have a short end and my short end is something that maybe people who don't live in la or aren't in a union in la wouldn't know about but it's a reason to move to la and be in a union in la and that is screener season Oh, yeah. And we are in the heart of screener season now. I'm in the Director's Guild. How many arrived this week? I get like probably three a day. The thing is, I'm in the Director's Guild and my wife is in the Producer's Guild. Oh, you get them all. So we often get two of them. Um, <laughs> but also, like, there are some movies that are being pushed by the Director's Guild that aren't being pushed by the PGA and vice versa. Like, for instance, oh, yeah. the PGA uh, sends out a lot of documentaries. Mm-hmm. And DGA doesn't, you're not, always, all the documentary filmmakers are not often DGA. I feel a little bad about it because I want to go see these movies in the theater. Oh yeah. But it, like I went to see The Shape of Water the other day and literally the day after there's The Shape of Water screener. Oh yes. Uh, we went and saw, we went and saw a movie in the theater and uh, of course the screener arrived the very next day. Yeah. So I don't mind, especially if they're good movies, I don't mind, uh, you know, going to see them anyway on the big screen. And I've been known to go to watch a screener 
and then go see it on the big screen because I know that that's where it's meant to be seen. But they send these screeners out in my in my instance for the DGA awards. It's not for the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. uh, although I think there's probably a lot of Academy crossover people who are in one of the guilds or sure. unions who are also in the Academy. You get to nominate though, don't you? Uh, I get to nominate for the DGA awards. Oh, okay. So, but, you, but your wife, she gets to nominate for for producers guild. For producers guild, but doesn't that don't those nominations go then to also affect Academy or? I don't know. I think you have to be an Academy member to vote. Huh. It's all very arcane and weird. I mean, like the well, Golden the Globes, nomin- for instance, like the Golden Globes are just, it's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and they just release nominations. We don't know what black magic brought them about. Oh, I thought that the nominations from the guilds actually shaped that the nominations for the Academy. I think a lot of times they're an indicator. Oh, they're an indicator. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought I actually had like a, like a direct. But I mean, like the thing is that anyone who directed a movie within a given year through the Directors Guild can be nominated. The year that I made Alien Raiders Mm-hmm. For fuck's sake, Alien Raiders was a choice on the DGA Awards. Now, I know for a fact that it got one vote, but I don't <laughs> think it got too many other votes. I'm just saying. Oh, awesome. <laughs> but, a- but any idea who that vote was from? Uh, yes, <laughs> I, I have an idea. No, but but screener season is is kind of glorious because it, it is like Christmas every day. I come home and there's like a couple of bubble packs on my on my uh, front porch and I open them up and a lot of times it's a movie that I maybe wasn't going to go see in the theater uh, or it's a movie I saw in the theater that I would love to see again and maybe study a little bit more closely now they're all watermarked so I can't give them out so if you know me please don't ask for my screeners because I'm not going to give them to you mm. but um, they, they basically ask that you either destroy them or never let them out of your uh, safekeeping I, I love the warnings and the the orders to destroy them it's very mission impossible so it you're is. about to watch the screener and then you're going to destroy it <laughs> <laughs> it's, and, re- it's really like that and man. the thing I don't get about screener season by the way is that why are they still sending out DVDs I oh, wish it that could be a stream Absolutely. I, I wish you that could. it was like something on a Roku box or something <laughs> you could you could have the screener channel think yeah i know and just log in with your thing and you can only watch it once and you don't own it and you can't download it there's a way that they could do it maybe one day the technology will catch up i'm bummed out mostly that it's dvds because it means that everything i'm watching is in standard definition Mm. but especially because you know unsurprisingly you and i would both be watching for cinematography and we'd prefer high definition it's true and i gotta say though that quite often my standard def dvd still does look better than the supposedly hd streaming off of some of the services out there i won't name them but you know who you are so (laughs) well i mean yeah i would obviously prefer a blu-ray but also i feel like they could save if they took the money that they were putting into sending out dvds into creating an app that we could just watch on our television somehow through roku or amazon fire or whatever uh, I feel like they could probably save themselves a lot of money because God knows how much it must cost them to send out however many thousands of, of DVDs they're sending. And I have to imagine that it would create the opportunity for a lot of smaller films to then suddenly be considered if you could stream everything. So, well, yeah, I don't know. It's it's I think it opens up a real can of worms and people aren't ready. Well, to maybe see. that's maybe you're onto something. Maybe the barrier to entry is the exact reason why they do do it that way, because even though it's inferior to streaming it, it's more expensive. That's true. More expensive makes it harder than for smaller people to compete for the Academy Awards and for the attention of the Academy members and the Guild members. Well, there you have it. I think we have a conspiracy theory that explains why we're all getting DVDs. Thank you, Ilya. You've you've solved my, my question. All right. So my short end this week is LED lighting. I don't know if I've ever talked about LED lighting before, and I don't know if anyone has any idea what I'm talking about. I'm sure we've talked about LED lights because they've taken over everything. They have. They've taken over your car headlights. They've taken over the fluorescent tubes in your in your ceiling, potentially, or even the, the light inside your refrigerator, the little keychain flashlight. LED lights are everywhere. 
including motion picture cinema lighting. And what's so amazing about them is they last forever. They take up very little power. And now they actually have very high quality of light. So are you talking again about the airy sky panel? Uh, you know, the airy sky panels, of course, are amazing, but uh, LED lighting as a technology is not, you know, exclusively a, the domain of airy. There's many people who are using it and the technology is becoming incredibly mature. And there are really, really amazing products that don't cost a lot of money that utilize this technology that I tell you are being leveraged to their maximum extent by indie filmmakers, people who are just starting out. They can run around with battery powered lights and make amazing, amazing images. So LED lighting is in some ways creating a new golden age of movie lighting. In fact, even on big shows, they're now looking at these big, big LED lights because the bulbs aren't going to burn out. They have incredible, incredible punch. There's a lot of, uh, can I just power. say yeah. the best thing ever? They don't put out any heat. Yeah, that's right. Your ice cream will not melt when it's got a bright light shining on it the way, you know, your ice well, cream used to. Moreover, most movie sets in, in, you know, the days of yore were pretty ripe after about three hours. Cause we were under baking under hot, like, you know, 10 K lights. Oh, that's right. Actors having to have lots and lots of makeup and constant touch-ups, you know, to try to alleviate sweating. Plus, also in the early days of like the maxi brutes, and or actually, I'm not sure it was it was the the arc lights, the arc lights that had, um, I mean, incredible, incredible output. I've heard stories about actors going blind or damaging their eyes from staring up at these lights. So no, it those, day, those days are gone. The heat is now gone and the expense is coming down on these lights soon. It's not going to be such a, a major burden to have some very high quality lights to light your show. Well, and maybe this is a self-serving uh, thing to ask. Uh the owner of hot rod cameras, but like what's a good like starter led kit going to, going to set somebody back. Uh, it really depends. But if you kind of look at traditional tungsten lights, the sort of standby, uh, you were generally looking somewhere in the neighborhood of like $2,000 for a set. Yeah. And that number has shrunk by quite a bit, but, um, really it, it kind of depends on what you're trying to do, but you, a few hundred dollars, you can get some lights now that are pretty impressive. And so maybe, $1,000 for a three light kit is not out of the question. This is a very basic, you know, small yeah. interview kit sort of thing. But uh, yeah, you can you can still go hog wild, go crazy, but you're getting so much more light and so much more control of your light for so much less money than you used to be. No, I mean, I've, I've done in the last month, I've done like five shoots. Yeah. And every time the only it was either LED lights or very occasionally we would have like a, an M18 uh, HMI, which is, which is very expensive light, but an amazingly powerful one too. And, and I think I want to say, you know, even though you can do it for these very low dollars for most people, this type of stuff that they're shooting, they probably should still have a few thousand dollars for the lights because it's not always appropriate just to shoot someone sitting at the end of the table with the camera, like six feet away and the lights, you know, 18 inches from the actor's face. Also remember folks, you don't got to buy it. You can always rent this stuff. That's right. There's a, there's a, an awful lot of rental companies out there. And I will say that the ability to rent this stuff is just getting easier and easier. You know, I, this is almost a secondary short end for me, but I recently encountered ShareGrid. Mm. Have you worked with ShareGrid at all? Yes. As a matter of fact, in a previous short end, I talked about the ultimate anamorphic test, so which I was a part of. So that was all sponsored by ShareGrid. Oh, I was unaware about so. that. Oh, yeah. yeah. So recently I was trying to rent something and the rental company I was trying to get it from didn't have it in, or it was out. And they were like, have you heard of ShareGrid? And I'm like, what? And uh, it's just sharegrid.com and it's in a bunch of cities and it's just owner operators. And I rented this big light from them 
And at first I was like, oh shit, where is it? Like, I didn't know you if I rented it from an individual, not from a correct. company. Yeah. But the good thing about ShareGrid is you can buy insurance directly from them. So you will have to be careful with that insurance actually. I mean, yes, you can buy it, but you'll don't break your stuff. folks. Yeah. Well, yeah that's that's or, or don't let it get stolen. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The good news at least is that it's there, <laughs> that's that, there's, true. that there's any insurance and then you can get your stuff covered. Um, but I was like, when I rented this light, it was a big light and it, and it was like, Oh crap, am I gonna have to drive to Irvine to pick it up? As it turns out, ShareGrid had figured out where I lived and the light was on my street. What? But yeah, I mean, there, there are people all over the place. And also if you have gear, you can list it on ShareGrid. I don't have gear. I don't really have that much that I don't think anyone would want to rent, but, uh, and but, it is kind of a hassle to be the administrator of that sort of stuff. So for some people, they may not want it, but you can turn that gear into some extra money if you trust the people who, hey, look, I, I'm a fan of ShareGrid. I think that they do some really right stuff. Uh, I don't know if the day is there when uh, the giant studio production uh, goes to ShareGrid and runs to 100 different people to, to pick up the stuff. No, but I bet it already has happened where a giant studio production needed a piece of gear they couldn't right. get, and, they, and that was the, how they found it. That has definitely happened. And actually, if you look at the ShareGrid website, you see like five or six different like big companies that like, Oh yeah, we, we use ShareGrid. So, so if you're looking to make films, if you got ShareGrid in your town, check it out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway. So, uh, Ilya, I think that about wraps us up for this, uh, episode 16 situation that we've just done. It sure does. Hey Ben, where can people find you? <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Neptune salad and you can find me at, uh, on Instagram at Benjamin underscore rock because Neptune salad was already taken and I didn't realize that Instagram was going to be a big deal. Uh, when I signed up and um, Who also, did? I'm also at Neptune salad on Facebook. Say hi. I'm all over the damn place. You can also find me at benrockonline.com. I can keep doing this all day. How about yourself, Ilya? Wow. It's hard to find me. I'm at hot rod cameras and hotredcameras.com. You can also find me on instas and Facebooks and stuff like that. I'm probably one of maybe only two Ilya Friedman. So chances are it's There's yeah, two of you. I, I think there might be one other in Russia somewhere. I think someone pointed out to me that there was someone uh, else, but yeah, maybe it, somebody just stole your identity. It could be. So it wouldn't uh, be the first time. <laughs> so we should also say this episode is edited by that's right. Mike Wilbanks, Mike Wilbanks at Lumos pictures. Check, check his stuff out. All of our music is by uh, K's Alatraxi. Go to musicbyk's.com. Check him out. Hire him. Have him do your next score. And our producer, our fine producer, Alana Cody, who is really putting on the, pressing down the gas pedal on us and getting more episodes out faster. Yes, she sure is. Thank you. Thanks, Alana. And thank you for listening to us. And we'll see you next time, probably in like a week or two. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.